The hooded figure slipped out of the village before dawn, setting off from his dwelling before most of the others had risen for their daily chores. This was saying something because the village woke early. The sun was oppressive by midday, so people worked at first light and stayed in the shade to stay cool later, or bathed in the river, or slept in their small homes with the doors open on both ends to invite a breeze. When they did the latter, the villagers napped on cots high enough to keep the insects and snakes at bay. Superstition said that if you slept on the ground, minions from the underworld would take you for your laziness, for putting your back to the ground rather than toiling on upright legs. But that was all bunk to the cloaked man. The idea of never resting used to be called the Puritan work ethic, and had unfortunately survived the forgetting deep in the people's minds. And as to snakes and spiders, they weren't from the underworld. Near as the cloaked man could guess, the astrals had somehow preserved them and the other creatures from the old earth on an unknown ark, or, for all he knew or cared, created them again once the land had dried. He passed the Dempsey house, made of better stone and larger than the rest, but still surprisingly modest. He passed the rectory, which had grown, where Mother Knight held her meddlesome meetings. And finally he passed the outer ring, where most of the unforgotten made their homes. Beyond them were the wilds and the desert, and as the man walked west and the sun blushed in the sky behind him, he found it fitting that the clearing had known just how to form itself. Like a flock of birds instinctually finding its array, so had the thousands instinctually settled into their ideal configuration. The unforgotten, who taught the clearing's villagers so many things they didn't question their knowledge of, didn't usually need defense from the desert and the wilds. They knew when unwanted things were coming. But even windows of the unforgotten weren't lit with candlelight as he passed, leaving the quiet of night's end unbroken. He crested a rise, then walked down its lee side. The bluing horizon vanished for a while, restoring his world to near darkness. And so he walked that way for a while, his eyes closed, because the moon was new and the stars were hidden behind clouds, and seeing simply didn't matter. One foot in front of the other. No worries of stepping into something, or on something, or going the wrong direction because the true guidance was within him, on the network, when its horizons managed to remain unobscured. After perhaps twenty minutes by an old-world clock, he reached the monolith, less than a quarter day from the sea. It reared up before him like always, first a dark triangle above the farthest dune, then growing into something flatter and wider as he neared. By the time he was over the dune, the eastern sky had faded from dark blue to light, warming with the first hints of blood red where land met sky. He stood before the thing, looking up. He waited. He remembered the feeling of knowing so much more than he knew now, but that was when he'd had a global mind to guide him. Now their number was trimmed, and for a while that had seemed to brighten the feeling. But despite all his shuffling, it had been dark for a while, until the recent new round of sparks— this time he swore they were different, and Clara agreed. But today, as with every day before, the monolith offered nothing. He stayed for long enough to know he was wasting time, hoping in an all-too-human way that the solution would magically present itself. But it didn't. There was magic, and he could make it, 
But the monolith was unchanging and gave him as little as it gave the others who believed it simply to be junk. Before leaving, he lowered his hood and pulled three small polished silver spheres from his pocket. He held them flat in his palm, trying to feel, knowing he'd sense nothing. The spheres had given him plenty in the past, but then again he'd felt his origin more fully before. His power had departed, like memory from the others. How had he once fed back into a reptar and destroyed it with a thought? How had he created the duplicate that lived inside? He remembered doing it all, but his how was as lifeless as the spheres. They told him nothing, only showing him his own long-lined face, the same face he'd seen in mirrors when the forgotten floods had started. And that unchanged face told him, it feels like it's been forever, yes, but it all might as well have happened yesterday. He pocketed the spheres. There was still magic in them, for sure, just as there was still magic in the monolith. But he couldn't touch it, couldn't access it, like a memory he almost knew but couldn't recall. A face he knew, yet couldn't place. He turned and headed back to the clearing. He arrived at his shop to find a man waiting outside. He was very tall, very broad. His arms were as big around as a normal man's thighs. Everyone understood the man's build because he labored as a blacksmith, another curiously no-questions-asked skill the unforgotten had taught the village's population ahead of the way things were probably supposed to happen. But his size was cause, not effect. He was able to blacksmith because he was big. He wasn't big because he smithed. And there might be another reason he smithed, it seemed, because smiths made weapons as well as tools, and a warrior would one day need weapons with which to fight.